Father in heaven, we're so thankful that uh, we can worship you today, Lord. We know that uh, life throws us a number of curves, and there are many a twist in the road and bump and valley and um, obstacle that we have to go around, over, through, under, whatever, Lord. But we just pray that as we continue to adjust to whatever life throws our way, that you would prepare our hearts this morning to hear from your word. Uh, Thank you that Christ is the cornerstone and the fount of every blessing. And we just pray that you would continue to pour your blessings upon us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning and welcome here. If you're just joining us, my name is Pastor Jeremy. And if you were listening earlier and you didn't hear me say that my name is Pastor Jeremy, there's a reason for that. I went backstage and talked to our sound team and then they were going crazy at the soundboard and I look down at my cord and say, oh, could this be it? And I just realized the only people who heard me were in this room, but whatever your heart needed to hear this morning, that is exactly what I just said. So be blessed, be encouraged, welcome here. Um, I have a friend, and I won't say his name because I have permission to share the story, but trying to be careful about how I do so. And he has some medical issues, particularly with his heart. And so in the morning, depending on when I see him, one of the first questions I'll ask is, how's the heart? How's it going today? And it's pretty obvious right away how he's feeling because if he's a little bit droopy or his eyes are dragging or if he's shaky, then I know there's some issues. Or, if, you know, there's there's all kinds of things that I can pick up on right away that tells me how his heart is doing. And if you've known someone who has heart issues, you know what that's like. Because when it's doing its job, it's unnoticed and everything is going well. But when it's not, everything else is out of whack. In other words, the question we're going to ask today and we're going to try to get at is, how's your heart? How's your heart? Because when your heart is working well, then everything else aligns. But when it's not, everything else is out of whack. We're going to ask that question from Mark chapter 10. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me. That's the 10th chapter of the book of Mark. Mark chapter 10. And what's happening here in this text is this, is Jesus's ministry is rapidly advancing. He's been in the north for most of the time. He's been in the area of his uh, hometown in another place called Capernaum. And he's drawn quite a following. He's got both his disciples and the onlookers and the curious and the crowds and his enemies as well. And today what's going to happen is his enemies are going to ask him a question, but it's not really a question. It's actually a trap. And their hope is to catch him and cause him to make a mistake so that he will condemn himself. And so the question they're going to ask him is about a very controversial, very emotional, highly charged subject. And that subject or that question is on divorce. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 is Jesus answers one of the most difficult questions, and that is what to do about marriage and divorce. Mark chapter 10 says this, And he left there, 
there was Capernaum and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. In other words, Jesus is traveling from the north to the south along that Jordan River. And every step he takes draws him closer to the cross. He is now leaving his place of refuge and shelter and moving into greater confrontation. It says the crowds gathered to him again, and as was his custom, he taught them. Now, please notice that. Don't read too fast. We're going to get to this text here in just a second, but it's important that you notice Jesus' regular custom was to teach people. So many times we look anachronistically at Jesus' life and we see all these miracles and we just want to watch it as a highlight reel from one big event to the next. But Jesus regularly stopped and took time to engage in instruction because how we think determines how we behave. And so he regularly built into his disciples a foundation of doctrine and truth. Jesus customarily, regularly taught. Verse 1. Verse 2, his, not the onlookers, but the enemies, his enemies, the Pharisees, came up to him in order to test him and asked him, here's their trick question, here's the trap. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus, stepping out of that trap, answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of your hearts, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, because this is hard, and they didn't get it. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I know this is a tough subject uh, for Jesus and for many of us because no doubt all of us in some way have been affected by divorce, some much more tragically than others. But let's walk through it and see how Jesus handles it. And the way we'll do it is in four parts. Um, There's the trap, the first part. There's the law, technically, legally, what is commanded, the second part. There is the third part, the the probing to see if there's any loopholes. And the fourth, the answer, the truth. So the trap, the law, the loopholes, and the truth. The trap, the law, the loopholes, and the truth. Let's start with the first, the trap. And it is this, the Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now they know why they're asking this question. They're asking it because there's two different schools of thought. For them, it appears to be academic, but for us and many of the listeners, it's much more than academic. They know that whatever way Jesus answers this question, 
he gets himself in trouble. If he says, no, it's never okay to divorce, then automatically what he does is offends the group that has had some very difficult experiences. People who have been abused, people who have experienced mental illness, people who have experienced alcoholism or addiction or other things that are absolutely terrible. We can go through a list of things that are seemingly humanly impossible to live with and inevitably, out of compassion, most of us would say, well, by all means, there's no way you can actually live with that. So Jesus would offend that group if he said no. But if he said yes, on the other hand, it would appear that he violates the law and lowers the bar, the standard of God's unconditional love, eternal commitment, faithfulness, and righteousness. Either way, Jesus risks making a tremendous offense, either to hurt people or Almighty God. So what does he do? Is it okay ever to divorce? Well, now is a good time to ask the question, what would Jesus do? WWJD, well, characteristically of Jesus, if you read this, he is smart. He is wise as a serpent. And so rather than initially stepping into the trap, what he does is steps back and invites the trap setters to step into the trap themselves. And so he asks the question, well, what does Moses say? And then they know, uh-oh, <laughs> he just stepped off the hook, and now we're on the hook because we have to answer and interpret the law. And so they get very technical. They get very careful because they also don't want to step either way or the other and fall off of a cliff. And so this is what they say in verse 3. Um, he says, or in verse four, he says, what did Moses command you? And they answer, Moses, technically, he, he allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So they're careful. This is what they say. Okay, Moses allowed this. And they're beginning to look or grasp or stretch to see if they can find any loopholes. And the reason is, is because as they appeal to the law, They're trying to figure out, did the law endorse it, condone it, or simply acknowledge it and limit it? Let me give you another example. Let's say, for example, we're at Bay City State Park and we're playing on the beach and someone accidentally pokes out my eye. Maybe we're wrestling in the water or something like that. We're having a good time and boom, they poke out my eye. Ouch, man, that hurt. Oh, no. And then all of a sudden, my sinful self begins to take over. I feel angry. My flesh rises up inside of me. I want justice, but really, I want revenge. So what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to poke out their eye. I'm going to kick them in the shin. I'm going to throw a little sand in their face. I might even kill their dog and steal their car. I'll teach them to poke out my eye. See if they ever do that again. And that's what happens. When we experience injustice, we know that it is wrong, and so it angers us deeply and intensely and emotionally. And as we ourselves, who have been effective, begin to reach out and try to ensure that justice is done, almost inevitably we overreach and we do too much and more than we should. 
And that's why the Bible says, and Jesus commands us, look, vengeance is his. He will repay justly. And so before Jesus comes, the way in which they ensure justice to be done is that the law limits. Write that down or memorize that or hook on to that. The law limits. It is not the idea that the law is like, yay, let's go poke each other's eyes out. This will be fun. No. What the law says is, okay, hold on here. You experienced evil. True. But after having experienced that, retribution is limited to exact proportions. In other words, you can't overdo it. The limit stops here. No more escalation. No more making things worse. Instead, if someone pokes out your eye, take it before the judge. Let them render an equal thing, and then it's done. Divorce is the exact same way. The law is not endorsing divorce. The law is limiting the damages done. If someone cheats on you, if someone hurts you, if someone abuses you, it's not saying go after them and do tenfold, but is instead what it's saying is, okay, this thing, this covenant, this eternal agreement, this thing that God made beautiful, man has made ugly, and therefore, yes, it might end, it might have to end, but if it does, it stops there. No more, no less, issue a certificate of divorce, and then it is over. There are no loopholes. It's a limit, not an endorsement. So the law now is clearly put in context. You have number one, the trick question. Number two, the law, does the law endorse it? No. What does it do? It limits it. And number three, the loopholes. As the Pharisees are looking around, they're reaching out for the loopholes. And essentially what Jesus is going to point out by pointing to their hearts is to say to them, this is not the loophole you're looking for. If, in fact, you are looking for loopholes, if you are looking for an out, if you are looking to justify or rationalize your behavior, what does that tell us? Automatically, it tells us your heart is not in it. If you're looking for a way out, you're not talking about compliance. You're trying to find an excuse. And what this shows us applies not only to marriage, but every single area of our life. And we have to ask ourselves the question, What questions are we asking? Because the questions that we are asking reveal the desires of our hearts. What do our questions say about us? If we find ourselves looking for a justification or looking for a rationalization or looking for an excuse, then that tells us something. But I don't know about you, but in my life, it's a lot easier to do it the other way. Sometimes I have to make a decision that I know will encounter pushback and negative feedback. 
But when I do so, I want to be in a position that I don't have to justify it at all. Take today, for example. We were really looking forward to worshiping outside. There was a forecast. There was a prediction. And we went to bed expecting it to be wet. Now, if it did not rain, (laughs) I might have a lot of people looking at me like, why did you do that? And then I'd be quick to be like, well, it, it said... But today, I'm not facing a lot of questions because we can listen to the sound of the rain falling down on the roof and we don't have to make an excuse. We know it rained. There was nothing we could do. That's reality. And so here we are. When you make your decisions, wouldn't you rather be in that spot in a place where you can say, honest before God, my heart was clean I was trying to do what you wanted. I wasn't looking for loopholes or excuses or grasping at rationalization or anything else. I can just say, God, you know. You know what happened. You saw everything. And this is where we're at. No excuse. No rationalization. It just is. This is the place we all want to be, regardless of marriage or anything else. We want to be in a spot where we don't have to justify our actions. There's a really easy way to get there. And that's just to look at your heart and ask yourself this question, what question am I asking? And if the question you're asking is, what does God want? What does God desire? And that is what I'm after. Then after you make that decision, knowing that intent, there's no looking back. And you can be in a place where second guessed or judged or whatever else, you look at God and you say, you know my heart. You know why we decided that. And after that, Lord, it's on you. Number one, the trick question. Number two, the law, the legal, the technical. And number three, the loopholes. And number four, the truth. This is the last one and the last thing I want to get to today. It's the truth. There's the trap, the law, the loopholes, and the truth. And the truth is this. In short, marriage is a really, really, really big deal. Marriage is a really, really, really big deal. Well, how big? Well, it's bigger than the law. That's for sure. In fact, when Jesus answers this question, the way in which he does so is he quotes from Genesis one twenty-seven. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse um, 26, it says this, Then the Lord God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion. And skipping to verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. In other words, what Jesus is doing here when he answers this question, is he's saying that marriage transcends the law. The law came from Moses later on. Genesis, another book of Moses, precedes the giving of the law. In other words, because 
It precedes it. It is greater than it. So regardless of what exceptions or loopholes or whatever you might think you find in the law, if you go back to God's original intent, it is very, very clear. One man, one woman, for life, that's it. God's intention from the beginning of time looks like that. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, for one, it represents the image of God. And if you think about God, he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. They are distinct persons, yet equal in value and in essence, and forever one. That is what marriage is supposed to look like. The image of God is supposed to reflect the Godhead. There is diversity, yet there is unity. There is no difference in value, yet there is a difference in role. There is a structure. There is harmony. And it it looks, like some people say, like a triangle. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But the point is, is that your marriage is supposed to be a reflection of God. So all of a sudden, Jesus is like rebelling against God the Father. That's not the Godhead. If all of a sudden you have one member of the family rebelling against another, that is not representing the Godhead. If all of a sudden you have the Godhead breaking apart, it is no longer faithful, it is no longer united, If all of a sudden you have a marriage breaking apart, it is no longer faithful, it's no longer united, it's not representing the true faithfulness and unity of our deity. Marriage is a picture of the image of God. Little marriages walking around on our planet are all supposed to point to who God is. And if they're unfaithful, if they treat each other poorly, if they don't get along, That does not look like God. So why is it a big deal? One, it precedes the law. Two, it's a representation of the image of God. And three, it's a gospel issue. Marriage is actually a gospel issue. Now, I got to be careful about that because there's a lot of things in life that are not gospel, you know, and we need to just go with it, whatever they might be. But this one, is a big deal. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. You can see where it's at in my Bible. Ephesians chapter 5, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul's talking about husbands and wives beginning in verse 22. And in verse 31, he says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, how the two become one. But Paul is saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, marriage, God's design, is to picture redemption. Jesus and his bride. And God made this before the law, before government, even before the church, there was marriage, which would eventually reflect what the church is supposed to be, a picture of the relationship of Jesus and his bride. 
So no wonder marriage is under attack. No wonder our society wants to undermine its foundations. No wonder it is one of Satan's primary targets. Because if he destroys the picture of marriage, he destroys the image of the gospel. He attacks the image of God. And he undermines all the foundations that God has laid for the redemption of his world through Christ and the church. The mystery is profound, but somehow husband and wife are to represent Christ and the church, the redemption of humanity through Jesus on the cross. That's why it's so hard to be a husband. You're supposed to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Who can do that? That's why it's so hard to be a wife because you're supposed to submit to your husband like Jesus submits to God the Father. Who can do that? And yet, this is the high calling or the banner that we are called to hold up. God's banner over us is love and this is the banner that we have to rise to become. Marriage, it's a big deal. How big? Well, it's way bigger than the law. It precedes and transcends it. It refers to the image of God. You can't get any bigger than that. And it's a gospel issue. It points to Christ in the church. This is one spot where we really, really must make a stand. Now, in the next few moments that are left, in less than five to ten minutes, I want to give you a few rules of thumb that you can apply in general um, to make sure that you're on the right path with wherever you're at. I know that not everyone here is married and everyone's experienced different things. So the way I'm going to address it is this. We're going to start with those people who have never been married. And I'll talk to you. Then we'll talk to those who are married. We'll talk to the divorced. And answer some questions about remarriage. And then, hopefully tie it all together at the end. So, for those of you who are who have not been married, maybe you're young... Maybe you're further along or wherever you're at in life. Um, first of all, when it comes to not being married, you need to know that singleness is a noble calling. Singleness is a noble calling. It is actually a good thing. For those of you who are able to maintain your purity and stay single, by all means, do so. You can serve God with no strings attached and move forward with whatever he calls you to do, like Mother Teresa or whoever else, and you can go to the ends of the earth for the cause of Christ and not worry how it impacts other people. That's a good thing. That's a noble calling. Stay there. If you have no desire to be married, you're not broken. There's nothing wrong with you. That's okay. Being single is good. However, if you notice within yourself a longing for intimate companionship, if you desire to have sex with a member of the opposite sex, then that tells me you are not called to singleness. That means You're moving towards marriage. And if you're moving towards marriage, please hear this. I sincerely and firmly believe this with all of my heart. I tell it to my children. I'll tell it to anyone who listens. Marriage, who you marry, is the single most important decision you will ever make in your entire life besides following Jesus. Who you decide to marry is the single most important decision you'll ever make in your entire life besides following Jesus. It will impact you and your life and influence you more than anything else. Whether it goes well, whether it goes poorly, this will deeply, 
impact your life. Understand that who you decide to marry is the single most important decision you will ever make besides choosing Jesus. It's a big one. It's big. Now, because of that, the Bible gives us some very clear guidelines. Um, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 14, it's actually um, more towards the start than Ephesians. Sorry, it's verse chapter 6, verse 14. Chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, verse 14, says this. It's an older analogy, but I'll explain it here in just a minute. It says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Here's what's happening here in 2 Corinthians. Basically, Paul is teaching us that as human beings, our bodies become the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, it was the tabernacle and temple system. In the New Testament, because of Jesus, now the Holy Spirit can dwell in us and we are united to Christ. Mystically, metaphorically, um, we are united to Jesus. And so if Jesus is united to us, we cannot take that which is ultimately holy, Christ, and unite it to something that is totally anti-Christ or not holy. That would be anathema. That would be a terrible thing. And so what the Bible says is, look, if you are a Christian, do not marry an unchristian. If you are a Christian, do not marry a non-Christian. Why? Because you're uniting Jesus with something that is not Jesus. When you become one, just like Genesis told us, you become one flesh. Christ is already in you. He's united to you. And he does not want to be united to that which is not holy. Do not be unequally yoked. If you've got two oxen and one is this size and another is this size, they're just going to go around in circles. They're going to pull against each other. It's not going to work. That's the analogy going on right here. Another way to think of it, one of the things I'll tell people in premarital counseling, is it's kind of like a triangle. We talked about the Trinity. You think of the three persons of the Trinity, the Godhead, like a triangle, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You can think of your marriage in the same way. If you have male and female at, the, at either end of the bottom of the triangle, and they're both Christian, that means their goal is to grow closer to Jesus every day. And as they grow closer to Jesus, moving up that triangle path, inevitably they grow closer to each other. That's a good thing. That's a good marriage. And that represents what God wants to happen. That as we both pursue God, we inevitably get closer together as a couple. You're moving in the same direction. But if you're unequally yoked, you're not. You're not moving in the same direction. It is absolutely essential that you marry a believer. Furthermore, here's just some practical advice on that. If you're getting married... A big thing in marriage is commitment, forgiveness, and love. Commitment, forgiveness, and love. Now, 
I don't know about you, but I don't see any better commitment to me than Christ. I don't see any better love to me than Christ, and I don't see anyone forgiving me more than Christ. Where I experience the most commitment, the most forgiveness, and the most love is in Christ. And that is the only way that I can possibly share that with others. The Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. As we have learned from you, God, how to forgive, let us forgive. So too in a marriage, in a marriage where both partners have been forgiven, they know how to forgive. In a marriage where both partners have experienced the faithfulness of God, they know how to be faithful to each other. In a marriage where both partners have experienced the love of Jesus, they know what it's like to sacrifice and submit and follow and lead, and therefore they know how to love. It's absolutely essential that you marry a believer. 2 Corinthians six fourteen. Okay, so... Number one, if you're never married, there's some advice for you. Number two, if you're married, number one, stay married. If you're married, stay married. Now, Pastor Jeremy, you just said that whole thing about an unbeliever. I'm married to an unbeliever. What do I do? Stay married. Stay married. If you are married, stay married. Um, The Bible is very clear about that as well. And I know inevitably there are going to be questions that come up. We're going to say, Well, what about abuse? Uh, What about infidelity? What about chemical dependency? What about mental illness? What about, what about, what about? Granted, there are terrible things that happen. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and Matthew 19 talk to some of those exceptions. Like, for example, if your spouse dies or if your spouse leaves you and remarries or if you have been abandoned by an unbeliever. All of those exception clauses are addressed by Scripture. But there are many that we experience that are not. And so I'm not going to stand up here and make a hard and fast law about how to apply the law. But let us say we know what the intent is. And if we can head towards the intent, if at all possible then by all means do so. Now, of course, if you're in a dangerous situation, if you're being abused, if you're getting hurt physically, call 911, remove yourself from that dangerous situation. I am not saying (laughs) put yourself in harm's way. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the ideal state that God commands in his word is for two believing spouses to move closer together towards him unconditionally and eternally. Stay married. Now, Let me address some of the temptations. Let's say you've been married for a little while. And after a while, maybe you're doing really well, but you think your spouse is not as attractive as they used to be. And you begin to hear a little voice inside your head saying things like, you could do better than that. Come on. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Here's the truth. Your spouse is the very best that you can do. That's why you got them. Everybody else said no. That's it. Your spouse is the very best that you could do. And if you start thinking otherwise, it is the devil playing to your pride. It is not true. Your spouse is the very best that you can do. Stay married. I know one fellow who was at the seminary that I attended to, 
his wife was diagnosed with MS. And basically, it was a terminal diagnosis, and it was about a 10-year process. And so the doctor who gave the diagnosis looked at him and said, now is the time to divorce. Now is the time. But we watched, and he stayed to the very end. When he's pushing her in a wheelchair and spooning little drops of food into her slobbering mouth, that was his wife. And he did not leave. That is what the Bible calls us to. Stay married. Stay married. A lot of good things you can do. You'll hear about a few of those in just a minute from um, the Wins family. They run a marital program at our church, which is super awesome. Uh, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Most of the time as a pastor, when I'm asked to go into counseling, it's already too late. People have made up their minds. A 10, 15-year process, and now they're just walking out the back door. Don't get there. Start way way earlier than that. If you're having problems, you need to come in now. Don't wait. Marital enrichment, make it a regular part of your marriage. Then finally, to the divorced. Um, number one, God loves you. Number two, God loves you. Number three, God loves you. Number four, God loves you. <laughs> Should I keep going? Um, God loves you, and he will never leave you. Despite what any spouse has ever done, despite how you've been lied to or hurt or mistreated or whatever else, Jesus loves you and he will never leave you. You do not walk around with a great big scarlet D on your sweater in front of him. He loves you. Now, because he loves you, you need to trust him. This is where it often goes wonky because once you've been in a situation and you've been hurt, um, people are scared, right, naturally. And so they are easily taken advantage of. And it's highly possible that someone may want to pray on your estate. But you need to trust Jesus to provide for you physically, to provide for you emotionally, to provide for your loneliness, and you need to take it slow and don't get hurt twice. I admire those people very much who after having lost a spouse, either to death or divorce or whatever else, commit to remain single for a long time. That is a huge commitment. But it is admirable and noble. Remember, singleness is a noble calling. Singleness is a good calling. Hold high the banner of Christ. Just because you've been hurt once, don't necessarily jump into it and do it again. If you're thinking about remarriage, the same things apply that we said to the never married Number one, they better be a believer. Number two, only 1 Corinthians 7, if, if your spouse has died, or if they have remarried, or if you've been abandoned by an unbeliever. I know that some of those things are hard to figure out, um, but here's the thing. Basically, the idea is there's no chance for reconciliation whatsoever. There's no chance for reconciliation. These are some very good examples of that. Then you're in a place to remarry, but the safe the best bet often is just to stay signal. All right, so just recapping what we said today and then we'll close. Number one, the trap was a question on divorce. It's a hard one. 
Number two, the law. It never endorses, it limits. Number three, the loopholes. If you're looking for a loophole, it's a bigger issue. And number four, the truth. Marriage is a big, big deal. So I'll conclude by asking you the question we started with today. How's your heart? How's your heart? How's your heart towards all of this? It's not about what's legally okay or what's justifiable or what we can get away with. But the reality is it's all about God's intent. What do my questions that I'm asking reveal? How's your heart? Father, we thank you and praise you for today. We thank you for the gift of marriage and singleness. Lord, I pray that you'd be with uh, the divorce today, all those who've been hurt. Lord, we know there are um, great evil and tragedy that happens in our world. And we just pray that as we walk alongside um, our brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever their situation might be, that you'd give us grace, understanding, compassion, a willingness to love and reach out. And Lord, help our commitment to our marriages look just like Jesus' commitment to you. In his name we pray. Amen.